One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, good evening, wherever you may be in the world. This is the Front 3 podcast, but there's only two of us participating. I would hope by now you know that I am Kristen Hennage and I'm joined by Nico Morales. Nico, how are you doing on this Thursday evening? I'm doing well. How about yourself, Chris? I'm not bad at all. Um, it's lovely to be back with another Q&A podcast, which always seems to get our, our listeners out in uh, in numbers with their curiosities and opinions, which is It's nice, but I think it's better off if we start at the the most pressing concern of the evening, which was the Emirates, where Arsenal were quite convincingly again beaten by Manchester City just five days after losing the League Cup final at nearby Wembley. <sighs> Crikey, I bet you were delighted with this one, Nico, given how comfortable it was for for your beloved Man City. Well, it's funny that you say that because I was a little nervous in in the opening five to ten minutes because as I was kind of publicly talking about on Twitter, there was some really good shots and chances created by Arsenal. And, and to me, that's kind of the biggest thing. Um, I don't think it was as threatening as I probably thought looking at the more advanced metrics, but it was still a, a worrying fi- opening 15 minutes from Manchester City. And then they took the lead by a wonderful Bernardo Silva goal. And it was wonderful and it was great to watch, but it was really sort of low probability shot. But then as the game sort of went on, Manchester City grew more and more into it. They finished their chances really well, and then they started to to create more and more chances, um, and Arsenal just kind of fell flat. It was a very similar story to that of the Carabao Cup, where Arsenal came out strong, they created some good chances at the beginning, and then they just they kind of seemed to lose the plot after, you know, decisively being able to cut open Manchester City in the very beginning. So, I mean, yeah, I was really excited with it. I've kind of started calculating. I mean, it doesn't take a lot of calculation, but Manchester City, I think, only need 17 points now or 15 points to be mathematically clear of anyone anyone else winning the league, so they'll have won it. Um, and that's really you know, not that far away um, if they can put a run of wins together once again on, on sort of this side of the season. So it's an exciting time, and, and it was really, some really actually exciting football to, to witness today against, against Arsenal. I'm interested to hear you say that because... One thing I noticed about the Basel game was that uh, the young chap, Oberlin, had quite a decent chance early on. It seems to be a theme for me that when I watch Man City, they start incredibly well and they score goals usually inside the first half hour, but they do concede chances. Almost like there's a little bit of an openness. But actually, when it comes to conceding goals, I've noticed it tends to occur more after half time. Is there a pattern they're developing? Is there something where there's almost... It sounds criminal to save the city side this good, but is there a frailty for them in terms of when they tend to concede goals or chances? 
Yeah, I think there is a genuine frailty when it comes to Manchester City defensively because, you know, although they are, you know, demonstrably better than they were last year, I have a rather strange hypothesis having watched this Manchester City team so much, which is that, you know, Manchester City have really good base defensive numbers this season because of the effectiveness of some of the defensive measures that they employ. So they're really good in possession. Teams normally don't create a lot of chances together uh, or against them rather um, because they're possessing the ball so much and then they win the ball back very quickly. It's a lot of counter pressing and, you know, they're very good in, in, in that respect. But there haven't been that many times where this Manchester City team is actively defending. There, there aren't and you know, sort of extended periods of time where Manchester City don't have the ball, and so a team like Arsenal, a team who can actually possess the ball for for extended periods periods of time, and it's a, it's interesting. One of the data scientists, Tom Warville, um, on Twitter was sort of tweeting out these graphics displaying the the elongated passing sequences against Manchester City, and I think. I think Arsenal have some of the most against Manchester City, and they're, for me, the team that has been one of the most threatening. Um, because, like I said, I, I don't think there is a prolonged period of time where Manchester City are actually sitting in, def- in a defensive shape. And so if you can actually possess the ball and make Manchester City sort of be impatient and s- try to squirm out of their defensive formation by winning the ball back... Uh, or, or rather failing to do so, then I think there are chances to be made. You know, there's a lot of a sheen of invincibility for this Manchester City team. And they are very good. They finish their chances exceptionally well. And when they do get the ball, they will create a myriad of chances against you. But if you can possess the ball and, and kind of get them to be overactive in their defensive shape, there's a, there's a lot of space to exploit. Mm. And I couldn't help but notice that I thought Kyle Walker wasn't that great tonight. I know he limped off, but... We're about positivity here, not negativity. So Bernardo Silva, Leroy Sane, talk to me about the one that you preferred the most or the one that you enjoyed the most tonight. I mean, they're they're both incredible, I think, in their own way, but it's it's difficult to, to kind of stand back. I think Ted Knudsen took his son to a game not too long ago. Um, to, it was Leicester against Manchester City, and, and he kind of commented on how, you know, the pace of Le- someone like Le- Leroy Sané is um, comparably different than it is when you're watching it on TV. I mean, his pace is just immense. And that was one of the things that stood out for me is that Arsenal in the beginning, like I said, they created a lot of good chance, a lot of good shots. Um, but Arsenal had completed very few dribbles and Manchester City had completed like 19 up until like the 20th or 30th minute. And that's that's a lot for, for so early in the game. And part of that is down to Leroy Sané. There were a lot of instances where he was taking on two players at the same time and beating them. It was Mustafi and whoever was on the right-hand side, I think it was Bellerin, um, and able to, to get down the touchline and put, put in a really good cross. So for me, I mean, he's just such an athletic player. His speed is a gift, but it's not just like a Jesus Navas speed where it's really useless because he puts in such bad delivery. He has the ability to shoot exceptionally well, and then he can pick out somebody in the box and, you know, he, he really throws thrives in the in this Pep Guardiola system because I think as you and I spoke a few weeks ago part of what's so efficient about it and what sort of amplifies the effectiveness of these players is that they don't just you know get the ball to the wing and make Leroy Sané take somebody on they move the ball and move the ball and move the uh, opposition until the the wide players are sort of isolated and that's when they look to take on their man and when you have someone that's as fast uh, as Leroy Sané or someone that's as good with the ball at their feet as someone like Bernardo Silva or Raheem Sterling I mean it's just really effectively uh, deadly Mm. and at the same time Arsenal there was instances where I thought they looked inept where they looked incredibly poor 
I mean, you can't deny City's brilliance. Was it as simple as that? Was it, you know, yin to yang in, in so much as Arsenal were terrible and, and City were great? Or or do you see kind of shoots of, of life here for Arsenal? I think it's so difficult to, I think, analyse Arsenal without bringing all the external factors into it, the Wenger situation and the players and, and sort of the aura around the club and, and how it's sort of a joke in the modern era. But today, I, I, I think... It's just, it, it has to be, I know, uh, and you, I think you're the first one to kind of tell me that I should um, factor mentality more into into analysis and things. And I think in this case, I can kind of say that because, like I said, I think they were really positive when they began. And it was an encouraging thing for how many shots they were getting away on Aderson. And then once that first shot went in, I can understand from an Arsenal perspective how that would be heartbreaking because of how you know, how many good shots you've created against Manchester City and then one particularly great moment from one Manchester City player ends up in a goal. I can understand how that can be disheartening, but for the entire team to sort of collapse um, from a midfield perspective and then let Manchester City back into it in, in such a clear way, I, I think is is kind of maybe down to, to frustration. And you saw some of those players on the field, I think, getting visibly frustrated with the fact that their shots were getting blocked and possession was being taken away and stuff like that. So I, I can definitely understand it. And losing the cup final to them just a few days before, I mean, that has to play into it, right? Mm. And the long-term projection for Arsenal is... There's an interesting subset of Arsenal fans, I read, who are adamant that Wenger will survive this, that he will be there come... September 1st, um, when the transfer window will have shut for a few weeks, actually, because it will have been reformatted. Are you of that opinion, or are you more the line that really this is this is inexcusable in terms of, of Arsenal this season, all that kind of stuff? I don't think it's... I wouldn't use the word inexcusable, but I don't think he'll survive it. And I think the club is pretty convincingly through their outward actions preparing for life after Wenger and I think that's the right decision should we remember him for these past couple of years and what he did at Arsenal no we should remember him as the manager that finished within the top four for 20 years straight I mean almost 20 years straight or something like that and achieved incredible things in the Premier League I think that's how we should remember this manager because on his day I think he is still a very special manager and can get the very best out of teams. And, and maybe we'll see him elsewhere and we'll see him in a better light. And maybe it's something else that we're just not open to or we're not able to see at the club. Um, but I, I don't think he'll be able to survive you know, the criticism and, and kind of the direction the club wants to move in. Because the, the thing that was keeping him there for so long in such at least, I don't know, you know, some sort of respectable position was the Champions League. And now that the club is going to, it looks like they're going to consistently miss out on that. I, I just don't don't see how that's justifiable to a club that wants to have somewhat of upward trajectory. Well, that does neatly take us into the question and answer segment of, of our show this evening. And it is Ahmad Ibrahim who asks, how do you guys rate Wilshire as a player and his potential impact in the World Cup? I think he's overrated, personally. But do you think he'll start? And if yes, in a two or a three-man midfield, love the front three. By the way, we love you too, mate. What do you think, Nico? 
I, I've really liked Wilshire's performances as of recently uh, in the Arsenal team, especially um, in, in the Carabao Cup. I mean, he was he was a danger against Manchester City. The, the chance uh, that they did create against Manchester City did come from him sort of moving forward. And I think he has that ability um, to, to take players on a midfield that not too many players, not too many midfield players nowadays do and, and sort of create special kind of chances and, and make his team move forward in an effective way. But as for impact in in sort of a world cup squad i think it's it's one of those things that there has to be a, i think a better option out there because you have to you have to factor in at this point his fitness concerns and you know the the injury problems that he's had i imagine that's going to be an issue before the end of the season if not in the world cup and i don't know if you take a gamble on a player like that who is effective on his day but there are plenty of talented young even you know appropriately aged English players out there to fill a squad. I think the the selection problems are going to be a headache for Gareth Southgate and his team. So I think he's good. And to say that he's overrated is, I don't, I don't know if that's completely genuine, but I definitely understand the, the train of thought. But I, do I think he justifies a, a place on the plane? I don't, I don't think so. Yeah, that quote from Guardiola all those years ago that we have a dozen players like Jack Wilshere in, in Barcelona's B team does seem to haunt him a little bit um it's kind of a weird one with him i do think there's talent there but i'm not entirely sure personally if it's ever going to be actualized partly through injury but partly i just think that arsenal's maybe not the greatest breeding ground for developing talent anymore which is as cruel as that sounds um adam boltwood a name that we're all familiar with asks who is your favorite member of the front three and why from a huge fan hashtag i am the whole Present company excluded, obviously. <laughs> I think the the present company is who I'd go with. I think I'd say you, but I'm curious to hear what you'd say. Ah, now I'm on the spot, aren't I? Surely. Now you now you have to say me. That's the kind of the tactic here. It is. That's that's how it works in Eurovision, at least, um, which I'm sure is relevant to a lot of our listener base. The funny thing is, I like each member in a different way. I've I th- I think definitely you and I get on very well socially, which helps. So that puts you as as top of my list for that sense um but yeah i think i think what the beauty of this is is that we all work together quite well so i can lean on dave for stats adam and 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 i talk about sort of more industry side things lawrence and i just make each other laugh um and so yeah i think i think you're all my favorite in a in a special way he said um straddling the horse of diplomacy um so yeah that's that's my answer tweet us with who is your favorite um but try and keep it you know level so no one gets big-headed no one gets upset um luke Dore, friend of the show friend of myself no less says do you think neymar being injured for the rest of psg season will probably cost unai emery his job in the summer i can't see them beating real madrid now um you can't see them beating real madrid is that that, that's sorry that's luke's uh comment on things oh i thought you said that i mean i can see them beating Real Madrid still because it is a very unbalanced team and they've had a ton of issues this season that I think a a team like PSG even without Neymar could possibly exploit but yeah I think it's it, for for PSG it, it is it is the Champions League that is what they're looking to win that's what they've been looking to win for a couple of years now Unai Emery Neymar all of these big moves were kind of brought to 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 do that and if they can't do that I think 
given the fact that it was off to a rocky start to begin with with Unai, given the fact that they lost the league to Monaco last season, and then they were taken out of the Champions League so in such a historic fashion, like that d- that doesn't look good for the club. PSG want to be a global brand, and they're at the the bad end of one of the like worst or best however you want to look at it comebacks in in champions league history and you don't want to be on that end you want to be advancing they wanted to make progress last season and i think maybe if they wouldn't have won it last season but you know they would have progressed further this season then that would be something you can kind of talk about but it just doesn't from a from a pure results perspective i think they're not entirely happy with him so i think if they don't advance past um past uh, real madrid then i think it's it's curtains for Unai. It's a shame, but I have to agree. I don't think he's uh, he's not the most pragmatic of coaches in terms of being forthright. I think he's he's quite a scared coach in that sense. I think we saw that even in the first leg, and I find it even more interesting to see uh, the young defender whose name is escaping me. Um, I know it's got a couple of K's and I's in there. Um, I had no idea who that guy was when when I saw that. I was like, because I I started the game a few minutes late, and I was like, who is that? And then he started Lo Celso as well in mm. midfield. I mean, you take some risks, yeah, but uh, I just it, it was a weird couple of weird decisions there. Yeah, Kim Pem- Kim Pembe. Is oh, Kim Pembe. Yeah, Kim Pembe had played last year in in the Barcelona leg, but there was another their left back on the day. I think was also because usually they, they play yes. Kajawa. Yeah. No, who you mean now? But no, what I was was going to say was I found it interesting to see that he finally sort of snapped back at the press about the, the constant Neymar questions, um, in again quite a forceful way, um, and said that you know it's it's about the team, it's about whoever is called up. So there's clearly some kind of tension there um, with him, which I think was always going to be the case when someone of that stature moves to a team for such a, a record uh, fee and all that kind of stuff. So it's. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting one to watch. Another interesting one to watch will be the relegation battle in the Premier League this season. And Jetson Gospel asks, will the Pardew-Hodgson-Pulis obsession end if Palace and West Brom get relegated? Would rather see progressive young English coaches in those positions. What do you think, Nico? Does I've heard it called the Dinosaur Club. I've heard it called a lot of disparaging things do you think clubs will will reassess if two of those coaches end up taking teams down this season i think i i i i'm i have a different opinion of of um sorry what's his name mr gospel the old, not, not Mr. Gospel, the old West Brom coach, uh, Tony, Pulis, Tony Pulis. I have a, yeah, I have a different opinion of him. I think, I think he's actually quite a talented coach. I think he's made some interesting decisions and put in different circumstances. So I kind of, I have a different opinion, but I definitely understand the, the, the gist of the question with, you know, the, the recycled English managers that go through this kind of stuff. Um, and no, I don't, I don't necessarily think that they'll, they'll reassess. I think these guys will continue to get jobs because it's, it's more of, um, the devil, you know, as opposed to the one that you don't in these Mm. kind of situations, because, you know, you are dealing with a lot of money, you're dealing with people's investments and stuff like that. And I think they would rather kind of take a 
take these more secure decisions with people who have a ton of experience and you can't fault them for that. I mean, they do have a lot of experience in these sort of relegation battle positions, whether they win or lose. I think the majority of them have a sort of a positive record in these situations. So I don't think it'll necessarily go away anytime soon, but yeah, should we ideally, would we like to see younger managers, not just English ones, but younger managers in general in these positions? Yeah, it would be great. But this is, this is the Premier League. This is the the big money, the big boys. So it has to be the old guys. Yeah, I can't help but feel as well that when you put someone who is in sort of Jetson's bracket, that young progressive coach, the one that jumps out to me is Graham Potter, you're not maybe doing them much of a service because you're putting them in a situation where A, it's not their players, B, it's probably mid-season or at least you know the season started and you've lost games, and then C, you probably can't even change players depending on when you do it, at least for a few months in. I mean, we saw uh, Marco Silva when he went to, to Hull he changed a lot of players around when that January arrived. The likes of Evandro, uh, Lazar Markovic came in, Dia Mercy and Bacani. And, and even he wasn't able to, to keep Hull up with all of that sort of uh, time, if you will. Whereas someone like Sam Allardyce, who, you know, for his, for his faults and his critics, had a bit more time with Sunderland, got his own players in, kept them up. It's, um, yeah, it feels, it feels a little bit, like using the right tool of the Swiss Army knife for the, the right job at hand. But that's just uh, an opinion. Another opinion is, or someone seeking an opinion, I should say, is Robert, or at RVN Finish. And he said, saw Chris tweeting about watching the Juventus documentary on Netflix. If any of you have seen it, what are your thoughts on it? Now, I've only watched 15 minutes of it, and I found it a little bit powder puff, a little bit, like an infomercial. You've got slightly different opinion though, Nico. No, I, I think the more that you go into it, uh, the the more the more of that image you'll get. It is a it is a series that is meant to speak as kindly about Juventus as physically possible. I think it is completely paid for by by Juventus. It's a self produced kind of thing. Or not necessarily self produced, but the company that produced it and the people that did had to put a very positive Juventus spin on the entire thing. That being said, I think there are there are a lot of interesting th- things to learn about the club um, in the documentary. And, and yeah, you're not going to find anything particularly negative about them, but there are a lot of things that Juventus have done right over the past couple of years. And I think this partially does shed a light on some of those things. And I think you said you watched the first 15 minutes, so you, I think you'll have seen it, but they kind of open with the, the pre- the preseason ceremony that they do at the owner's house uh, in sort of the mountains of Turin. And it's, it's a, it's a ceremony that they do kind of talking about the goals of the club and what it means to be a Juventus player. And I think it's those kind of things that cement this, this eternal winners kind of mentality with, with the, with the players and the club. It's, they've won five or six Serie A titles in a row. And Napoli are only one point ahead this season. If they mess up in just one game, not even lose, but if they just draw one game, then they're letting Juventus completely back into the lead and completely back in control of it. And I think given that, they, they, if that were to happen, I, I would <clears throat> I would uh, sort of pick Juventus to win it. Um, but even if they don't, you know, it, it's, a, it's sort of instilling a, a very elite mentality into the players that they decide to recruit. And it, I think it's, a, for me, it was a really kind of, Although it may be very kind to Juventus and you're not going to get a, a different perspective outside of it, it's still sort of inci- an insightful thing because it tells you what, you know, how one of the most successful clubs in 
you know, rightly the world operates and, and a lot of, a lot can be learned from, from the things in the, in the documentary, in my opinion. Hmm. Intriguing. I may have to give that one another chance then. Um, from one former Juventus coach, uh, we have Jake, who is at Jay Reefal asking, who would you get in as Chelsea manager to replace Antonio Conte when he inevitably leaves the club at the end of the season? Ancelotti, Tuchel, Van Hall. But the, the last one is mentioned with a laughing emoji, so I think that's uh, maybe not a serious suggestion. Who, who would you plump for, though, if you, if you had to? I would, uh, given the Monaco situation, how they haven't done you know as well as I think they might have thought or something of the sort, um, I'd probably say Leonardo Yardim. I think... I've had sort of a tinfoil hat theory that I think there's a good question to more maybe go more in depth on about about sort of Chelsea's transfer dealings and, and the way that they structure their team and their club. Um, but I think yeah, a good a good manager with a good defensive sort of mantra and counterattacking style is one that Chelsea seek to kind of bring in every single time because they have the squad uh, to to kind of best perpetuate that style of football so i think yardim given what he's done at monaco would would fit in very well and i'd like to see him in the premier league glad you mentioned that because umir asks how do you see chelsea's situation at the moment and can they attract top players if they finish outside the top four millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Followed up with Hazard and Courtois to leave? Question mark. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think Chelsea are kind of preparing for a little bit of a squad shuffling around or something like that. Because if you look at you know some of the recent transfers that they've made, they they bought Emerson Palmieri, um, and he didn't move from Roma to get bench minutes. He moved from Roma to get you know starter minutes somewhere um, and and possibly a bigger paycheck. So I think. With him, they're kind of you know they're probably going to be picked off by some of the bigger clubs or some of the more uh, financially able clubs in the summer. And who knows if Hazard or stay or, will stay or go? And I think they they make some decisions entirely based off his decision. But certainly clubs will be in for players like Ingola Kante and and Marcus Alonso, who have been really good performers for the for them for the past couple of years. Um, so they kind of have ready-made replacements ready, and I think. They, they sort of operate in a different way because although we do kind of associate them like the money coming into the Premier League and the major money coming into the Premier League with Chelsea because I think they were the, kind of the first ones to splash the cash, they don't have the same amount of money that the big players do now. They don't have the Manchester City or United money. They don't spend like that. They have to operate in a different way. And they've 
done really good business over the past couple of years, selling David Luiz for like 50 odd million and then getting him for a pretty decent price and then buying in Gante for really good money. And even a player that hasn't worked out for them quite yet, Ross Barkley, was bought for kind of pennies on the dollar in today's market. So I, I think they're, they make some interesting moves because they have to make some interesting moves. But Overall, they, they make some pretty interesting decisions. And I think, like I said before, it, it's kind of in the vein of let's build a, a team that's going to be able to play counterattacking football and they can change their manager out as quickly and very, you know, as soon as possible because it's not really that difficult to effectively implement that style of football. So if Antonio Conte lasts two years, then he lasts two years, then Yardim, then somebody else, th- they just kind of have to replace a a different piece off the squad every couple of years and still have like a really good player um to to be effective and to be a force in the league and and hopefully the champions league as well someone who hasn't been a force is timu bakioko and ellis parry jones the fourth which best name i've ever heard um who has been your shock player of the season it can be good or bad so perhaps robertson Salah, and bakioko he suggests who, who's your, your shock player? I think I, I haven't thought of mine. I mean, possibly Bakayoko, just because of how far he's dropped. I mean, it's not a permanent state, of course. He could very easily get himself back in order. But I remember reading a lot of scout reports. I remember watching some of his games back when he was at Monaco. There was, there was frailties. There was rough edges to round out there. I think his consistency, things like that. But he, he looks like he's been space jammed, for want of a better phrase. Um and and yeah, that's been a, a huge concern. Salah, I wouldn't consider him as as big a shock just because I think he's a very talented player. He was at Roma. Um, and I think you look at the Premier League, it's quite an open attacking sort of league anyway. It's one that I think favours the forward in terms of chance creation and things like that. And I've seen Loic Remy say that in the past that comparative to, to France, for example, it's... Um, it's more geared towards trying to attack and, and trying to score or providing you with the chances to do so, I should say. So, yeah, I, I think Bakayoko, personally. I, for me, it's between two two Brazilians. I think maybe it was more down to the fact that I didn't watch him at all um, previous to his move to Manchester City, but Aderson has been brilliant. I, I thought he was going to be good, and I didn't, I didn't know whether he was going to slide into the number one position right away. But to be as good as he has been and to be as effective as he has been, I mean, he's put in that position by the Guardiola system um, to, to take such a prominence in, in the City team. Um, but to so smoothly do that, I think, is credit to him. And, and I can't, in the summer, I would have never imagined that he he has been he would have been this good. Um, but I think the other player that I kind of struggle with, and it's been more of a slow burner, is, uh, is Roberto Firmino. Because when he originally moved from Hoffenheim a few years ago when when Brendan Rodgers bought him all the way back then um I just thought he was worthless I just didn't think he was a very good player and he has come leaps and bounds like he is the very focal point of that front three a great podcast uh between Mane Salah I mean he he kind of links those two players and and the little flicks they do and stuff I mean it's it's super fun to watch and I think he's like I said he's I think he's come leaps and bounds Three teams by the end of the season will not have come leaps and bounds. And Matt CFC asks, which three teams do you think are going down in the Premier League? Are we in agreement that West Brom is most definitely one of them? 
I, I don't pay too much attention to the bottom, so I think you're better oh. equipped to like really answer this question. But yeah, I would say probably West Brom. I'm I'm just like there really isn't that much of a point differential. But okay, West Brom, yeah, but between 19th and like 12th or mm-hmm. even 10th, it's 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 just a few. It's like two or three wins. That's it, or maybe like two wins, and you are jumping like four or five places. I mean, it is crazy how close these teams are. I feel somewhat disingenuous predicting this because obviously I have a horse firmly in this race, currently at 15th, would have been higher if someone had learned how to defend late on. Um, From the teams that I've seen, I think Huddersfield seem like they're they're able to scrabble points together, Brighton the same, West Ham provided Arnautovic and Lanzini stay fit are okay. The teams that concern me, uh, Crystal Palace because I think they've just got so many injuries and in theory they're going to be rushing Wilfred Zaha back as quick as possible which as we know from previous experience rushing a player back is a great way to give them a nice new fresh injury and Southampton just I could, I could be setting myself up massively because Newcastle still have to play Southampton so they could put four or five past us they look like a team that is constantly pushing towards a draw. They either take the lead early on and then scupper it later on, or they concede early. It's it's they're such a funny team for me because they've they've usually been so well organised and so well run, and some of their players are fantastic. Mario Lamina, Pierre Emil Hoiberg, both two fantastic midfielders in this league, um, and yet the nineteen million deal for Guido Carrillo felt like such a panic button moment for me that. They just needed a striker in. They weren't massively fussed. It was just get this big lad in and we'll, we'll see what we can do. But yeah, their team on paper seems much better than it is. But for some reason, whenever I've seen them this season, even when Newcastle went there, they they look so so sucked or more, so, so obliterated by a goal when they conceded. They seem to suffer much more than a lot of other teams I've seen. So yeah, I have a, I have a very feeling. similar I have a very similar opinion of Southampton. I think it's a it's not easy to explain sort of very quickly um, because it, I think it's a very complex problem. But Tom, who's a really great Opta analyst, uh, tweeted out something about the team teams that are that can are most likely to concede or concede the best chances directly after having a shot on target at the opposing end. And Southampton was like at the very top of that list. So they're, they're not good at like recovering. And I think that's kind of part of the problem, but yeah, I mean, I don't know if for me, that's the thing is exactly what you mentioned there is that they're a really good team on paper and even somewhat to, you know, to some extent they have these performances like, uh, against Chelsea in sort of the winter period, they had a really good game against them. And I think they got a draw so that at, at, at their best, they can be a really good team and they are made up of really good players. But like I mentioned before, there is just such a very, you know, very slim point discrepancy between even 10th and 19th that mm-hmm. it, it's so difficult to be like, yep, this, I mean, Swansea seemed like they were nailed on at the beginning of the season. And now they're, they're in the mixer of not being in the relegation zone. Right. Uh, they are 18th at present after a 4-1 defeat to, to Brighton. Right, I mean, but they're right, but they're. Tw- I mean, they're 27 points on with two other teams, yes, and then yes. you know, so it's just crazy. Um, and and I mean, yeah, even that result was was a bit of a surprise given how tight things had been under Carvey Held before that. Um, so yeah, it's 
it's such a bizarre and speaking quite honestly horrible season in that sense because usually by now this is where teams start to to pull away and you you get something because even even my beloved Newcastle have a nasty habit for throwing points away you look at uh, the Burnley home game you look at uh, Bournemouth away even Southampton away all winning positions that they gave up I, th- I think they're one of the the league's leaders for points given up or, or something like that. right so yeah that's um, so a concern so gun to your head three teams I think we both said West Brom yes I give think, me your other two I think West Brom I'm gonna say Swansea and Southampton actually because I wow. don't think Swansea create a huge amount either and I, I wow. think the early what we call and apologies to any cat owners the dead cat bounce is <laughs> is eking out of Swansea um granted they beat Sheffield Wednesday which was a decent result but there was just something about the way they lost to Brighton that, that put me a little bit uh, under. But yeah, if, if Palace suffer even a, a few injuries, I could see them going down very easily because they're 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 quite a young looking side from what I can remember. Actually, you got Fossey Mensa and their goalkeeper Wayne Hennessy seems to fly between Gigi Buffon and Gigi Buffoon. Um, our next question is. From JJ James, J James, excuse me, Hillwood, um, who asks, with the jobs that you have, do you ever have periods of time falling out of love with football? And do you believe there is a growing disconnect between players and fans? You want to start on that one? Um, Yes, undeniably you have periods where you fall out of love with football. Sometimes it's maybe because your own team is is atrocious, um, or in your case, finishing second. Um, or just because, you know, the, the frustration of, of just trying to, to get work. Because I think one thing that maybe people don't get is that this is a very, it's a very competitive industry. Um, it's not a very... Uh, financially blessed industry at, at, at our level or, or in our lines of work more specifically um, football writing is not one that will, will get you a house anytime soon um, and so yeah it can be very difficult to, to constantly stay in love with the profession usually from my experience I tend to dive into a rabbit hole of some sorts um, that could be looking at new players that could be sort of just reconnecting it on a, on a somewhat cellular level um, figuratively and, and, and just trying to find something new and exciting, which thankfully thus far there's been something new and exciting to um, to find. In terms of the disconnect between players and fans, of course, massively. So I think some of that is cultural. Um, you go back 20 years and if you were a local fan in Manchester, you were usually watching two or three lads who'd grown up in Moss Side or Salford or somewhere nearby that you had that connection with and yet at the same time you know I, th- I think just the sheer scope of, of interaction the players have to deal with makes it difficult for them to to have that connection because you can meet dozens and dozens of people you can have um, you know supporters tweeting you sending you Instagram messages commenting on your Facebook profile it's it's just overkill it, it's it's gone from being a lake to an ocean, and I think it's impossible for anyone, let alone a footballer, to to harvest a, an organic relationship with with that many individuals. Um, I think you can can show yourself 
in in that sense to to forge that connection you can you know you see players do blogs and all this kind of stuff but the problem is is that that at the same time will probably open you up to criticism and i think anytime someone or a human being can avoid criticism they're probably going to do it um especially when it's needless criticism and that's not to say that it's not warranted much as it, it it's it's not giving you anything in return you you giving a tell all interview you opening up about your childhood it's it's not going to gain you anything theoretically other than possibly people making quite nasty and mean comments to you through the the sort of faceless medium that is social media I really enjoyed that thank you very much uh, every now and again I get ever so slightly and I stress ever so slightly um, insightful on this thing I think we're down to our last one which is who I'm going to say Rishabha Singh if I've pronounced that pronounced pronounced that incorrectly I do apologise um, but he asks what was your favourite Champions League season I think for me, uh, it kind of coincides with my favorite Champions League team, which is the, um, if I miss the year, I miss the year, but I think it's the 13-14 Jupp Heinz's Bayern, Bayern Munich winning treble side, uh, or Bayern, treble winning Bayern Munich side. That was, I mean, that was an incredible team. It's certainly, uh, his his most recent Bayern side isn't, I don't think any any comparison to that, but but that that team was incredible to watch, especially the way that they decimated uh, Barcelona and, and and sort of the narrative that was surrounding even that club at the time. I know Pep Guardiola had left, but it was it was it signified kind of a change in football, and it, and that team was just so ridiculously aggressive um, that it was just amazing to watch. It was like you could get pumped just watching them. So for me, it's it's sort of that Champions League season. I like that. Um... Crikey, the best, best one. Um, see, the thing is, I've I've only seen my team in this competition sort of twice from memory, um, and the year that I, we, I have I have never seen them. In, <laughs> yeah, in that's how long ago. So. This this the last time, I remember we beat final three two. And that was the year that we we did something daft. Like we we lost our first three games and then somehow still qualified. And I think up until recently we were the only team in the competition to ever do that. So I would be inclined to say that season from a personal standpoint. In terms of, you know, the team that went and blum and won the thing. Um, Man United 99 were, were, were quite impressive, I have to admit. Their ability to sort of come back. Because even... And and again, I've probably made you feel even younger there because you definitely didn't see Man United '99. Um, they weren't always great, Manchester United. They had they definitely had their moments. Roy Keane against Juventus in the semi final, I want to say it was very impressive. Um, obviously, then gets booked, misses the final. But in the final, they weren't you know they weren't blow your doors off sensational like like Bayern Munich were against that Dortmund side. Um, although actually that was a fairly close one as well, if I remember right. Um, but they just had that sort of staying power. Brian McClare said in an interview this week that Ferguson was, was very good, but he was also lucky. Um, and he used a word that I don't feel comfortable using, knowing there are young years listening. But I think he was right to a certain extent. And, and that's not to diminish the achievement, not at all. It was amazing that they, they got a treble like that. It's it's just that they sort of engineered it at the same time. They, they cultivated their own. 
look Manchester United. So yeah, I would say 99, but that Bayern side's a good shout as well. We actually went to uh, London that year, and that was we uh, a mutual friend of mine and Lawrence's. Um, we hung out with some Dortmund fans, and we sang German songs, and it had competitions, and yeah, it was... It was my first real experience with foreign fans, and they were fantastic. So if you ever get the chance, try and uh, and do that, because it's a great opportunity. Um, so, yes, I think, yes, that is that takes us nice and neatly to the end. Travel, meet people. I have, a, I have a, a sort of a idea as to how we should end, end the podcast, since there's just the two of us. I'm, I'm all ears. Uh, I think it'd be it'd be fun to kind of talk about something that we liked that was outside of football. Um, oh, hit me with so it. So if you have any, no, I mean, I was gonna, I can, I have something prepared. Of course, I I came up with the idea, but but do you have anything that you enjoyed this week? Maybe a TV show or a movie or something like that, or something, anything outside uh, of football that you have seen or bought, or it could be a thing, it could be a whatever. Outside of the only thing I've been watching outside of football is a program on. Um, a correctional facility on Netflix, which, yeah, it's it's more sad than enjoyable, um, just because a lot of these people have unfortunately made really poor decisions rather than been bad people. Um, so what is this? It's a TV show about it's, what? It's about a correctional facility. I'm not even sure what state it's in. Um, it's essentially people awaiting trial and the conclusion of their trials. So it's it's a, a sort of reality television. I don't know if that fits in the context of jail, but. That's that's what it feels like, um, and you hear their stories. You hear, you know, sort of what they get up to. Ones that get in trouble. Ones that sort of play the system. All this kind of thing. It's it's not terrible. Um, there's about four or five of them. I think it's called Lockup County Jail or something like that. Um, outside of that, yeah, I don't think there's anything else I've really been watching. Um, no, I've just I've just been that that busy trying to get on top of stuff ahead of MLS starting. So. Um, yeah, it's been it's been fairly quiet. You have something prepared though, so I will stop waffling and allow you to uh, to enlighten us all with with this thing that you have. <laughs> no, I just um, there's a really good movie deal <laughs> at a theater near me um, on Tuesdays. That my local theater does a like if you go during the day um, instead. Of, I don't know how much you usually pay for a movie ticket, but it's it can be like you know seven or eight bucks or even more depending on if you go to like some really popular theater or on a weekend or something like that um and so on tuesdays they do like five dollar movies and it it's not like doesn't black out on any movie so i usually take that opportunity to go see films and i i had listening i had been listening to one of the ringers podcasts um channel 33 where they kind of toss all their auxiliary pods and, and stuff like that and sean fennessy who's the editor one of the editors in chief uh, at the site, he he interview like it's like every Monday or every two Mondays he interviews one of his favorite directors. Oh wow! Um, and the guy is escaping me, but basically he directed that new movie uh, Annihilation with Natalie Portman. Um, and yes, I, I I listened to the interview before I went to go see the movie because it really didn't have a lot of spoilers, and it helped me. I went to go see. That's why I kind of mentioned the Tuesday thing because I went to go see that movie. Um, and it was really, really good, uh, especially after listening to the interview and sort of the, the direction and the message uh, that the director wanted to put across was a lot clearer because I think without that interview, I would have been a little bit confused. But if you do get a chance to go see it, I, I highly recommend it because it is sort of um, – it's like a sci-fi 
it's definitely a sci-fi film, but it's one with more of a deeper message. It's, it's not just like aliens killing humans or anything like that. It's like it's more about human nature and a message about you know our our sort of our personality and our tendencies as people um and sort of how how it affects other people and it's sort of hidden behind a very well shot beautifully shot uh and really amazing um and well acted movie by a cast that is i think majority female which is also an interesting thing to see so um yeah i really highly recommend it to anyone out there who wants to to go or has you know free two hours something like that Oh, there you go. I think that concludes the Front 3 movie review and also the Front 3 podcast. I've been Chris Nehenich. Uh Nico Mars, thank you very much for joining us. Um, or me, I should say. Us makes it sound far more grandiose than it is. It's been a pleasure. Um, if there's somewhere that someone wants to find you or they want to read your stuff, what, what's, what have you been working on this week or lately that could be of interest to them? Uh, something on how Polino was used against Barcelona last week and how he could be used uh, next week. So if they that ha- isn't out yet, but uh, will be out soon. So if you want to check that out, you can follow me on Twitter at Nico underscore Omorales. Fantastic. And you can follow the podcast at The Front 3. We'll be back again on Monday and then Thursday. But in the meantime, just enjoy your football. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.